Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Uh, joining me here for the conversation this month, glad to welcome back Leslie Falconio, the head of taxable fixed income strategy for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Also excited to have with us this month, Gene Tenuzo, the global head of fixed income for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. So Leslie, Gene, welcome and thank you for joining us. Looking forward to what will be a productive and wide-ranging conversation on the fixed income asset class. Uh, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead the conversation with Gene. Welcome. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And and thank you, Gene, for really taking the time to speak with us. I mean, you know, this has been obviously a tumultuous year for both equity and fixed income. So we're, we're very interested in, in hearing your thoughts, particularly since, as we know, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have some you know, potentially large market moving meetings such as on May 4th when the Fed meets. But why don't we um, why don't we get right into Gene and let me um, just, you know, start with really what has been such a highlight and a a bit of concern, if you will, for I'm sure, you know, maybe some of your investors, but our advisors and some of our investors, just the challenge that we've had during 2022. And the performance, particularly of fixed income, you know, in the in you know the, the first you know 15 weeks of the year. So when we take that into account, so what what, do, what would you say is your near-term outlook for performance, and how does sort of like more importantly the risk landscape, you know, involve sort of evolve for the rest of the quarter? Great, thank you, Leslie. I think you, you framed it well, and I think the the highlight that investors are feeling pain in the bond market is, is very true and, and rings true to us for sure. Um, you know, you look at, for example, the, the U.S. aggregate um, on the calendar year return, uh, historically going back to the index's inception in 1975, was 1994 when interest rates rose sharply, um, and, they, and the index was down about 2.9%. And we look at where we are today on a year-to-date basis for 2022, and the index is down about 9%. So roughly triple the worst previous year. And that pain largely comes from an adjustment to expectations for monetary policy directly in response to inflation. We'd argue the adjustment has not been about growth. It has not been about uh, sort of demand-based fundamentals, top line from a corporate perspective, consumer spending or any of that, but is squarely on inflation and the Fed's reaction to that. So as you think about, you mentioned the Fed meeting coming up, you know, next week. This is a critical meeting for several reasons, and I think the the simplest of which is that the market is a powerful discounting mechanism, but really likes to understand and extrapolate a pace. It was very even and predictable in the last several tightening cycles, and we can think to the very methodical cycle of 2004 to 2006 when the Fed was raising rates by 25 basis points every meeting like a machine for for several consecutive uh, years, really. This is going to be different. And we have one 25 basis point hike already from March. We're looking to this next meeting in May to say, what does that pace look like? It's very likely that the Fed accelerates from that 25 basis point move into half percent move. And we think they do that for the next two or three meetings to really try to front load interest rate hikes uh, in order to have some credibility in their inflation fighting objective. I think that's important because the more they do up front, 
the less they have to do later on. Now, some might argue, boy, isn't the Fed already behind the curve? Inflation is up, you know, near 8%, um, and and rates are closer to zero. We would push back on that. And, and really, I think, you know, what we're seeing is a Fed that is only one source of the tight economy is facing this year. And that's the important thing for investors to think about, that this economy and this market is facing tightening from several angles. One of those is interest rates and monetary policy in general, as we think about the Fed's balance sheet getting smaller. Another is the consumer seeing tightening from a commodity and an inflation perspective, which ultimately is a tax on disposable income. And we need to also remember that we have other tightening facing the economy, including the largest fiscal contraction uh, that we've seen post-World War II occurring this year with fiscal spending getting smaller and impacting the economy to the tune of minus 4% of GDP. So the Fed is one piece of that, and that the tightening will be front-loaded. Um, but we do think if you look at what's priced into the market now, boy, that's, that's really already priced in. And so what we're looking for over the next three to six months is – some stabilization as we get more communication from the Fed, as the market is able to think about what that pace and that extrapolation of, of interest rate hikes looks like, the market can settle in to say, well, yes, the Fed is going to hike. Yes, they're going to be more aggressive than what we've seen in, in recent years, but we've already got a lot of that priced in. And so I think actually uh, getting more information about that will allow the longer-term yields to stabilize here. So let's 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 put in on the Fed for a second. And I, you know, I think, and I believe just that you've mentioned that you think there's potentially, and, and we know that more than likely, um, you don't know until it happens. Like the 50 basis points in May is, is really baked in. As you know, same with you can I can almost say, you know, the, June and July is pretty much also baked in as well to the marketplace and. So when we think about this upcoming Fed meeting, right, now we know that we have the overlay of a bit more information on, you know, quantitative typing, and we know that they're at that, you know, let's say at the 95 billion mission level. And, you know, do you think that there are two, two things? One, do you think there will be any surprises to this meeting? And two, is that I completely agree with you. I mean, you know, what the market prices in um, has been a – uh, tailwind to rates rising, but you know, do you do you believe the market sort of when it says okay, hike, 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 through say the first part of 23, and then all of a sudden ease? So, what is your when you think about this Fed meeting? Um, what you, what is your outlook in terms of the Fed fund, just not over the next say six to eight months, but maybe heading into the beginning of 23? Right. Yeah, I think you framed that very well, and I want to split the tightening into two pieces. You mentioned quantitative tightening. Um, as we think about the Fed's tightening path, our strong view is that clients should be focused and perhaps concerned on the interest rate side, but given what we know, not concerned about what the Fed is going to do or is doing with its balance sheet. Now, let's just talk about the balance sheet for one minute. Um, yes, we will have $95 billion a, a, a month rolling off the Fed's balance sheet here. But the Fed is not going to be actively selling long maturity assets or duration uh, off its balance sheet in the foreseeable future. That's critical to markets because 
of the way that quantitative easing works. The, if you go back to Ben Bernanke first introduced quantitative easing post great financial crisis, he actually wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post describing why the, the Fed was engaging in large-scale assets. Basically defined what we call the portfolio balance channel, which is the Fed takes risk out of the market and then other investors are forced to substitute risk. So if you had owned cash, maybe you buy long-duration assets. If you had owned long-duration treasuries, maybe you buy corporate bonds or stocks. That is what happens in reverse if they were to sell assets. So if they own long-duration treasuries, which they do, and were to sell them, that could have a disruptive effect. That's not what's happening. What the Fed is, is doing is similar to what they did last time, which is allowing short maturity securities to mature. And the reason that's important is if you think about it from a client perspective and think about you know, UBS's clients here, if a client owns a one month security, what do you call that security? On your statement, that would probably be categorized as cash or cash equivalents. So if that cash or cash equivalent matures and becomes cash US dollars, economically that is almost indifferent. I think what we do need to watch for is if that were to change at all and move to selling of long-duration securities, that's where we would get concerned. But let's talk more about the Fed funds rate because I think that's what's critical. On the Fed funds rate, yes, I think the next two, maybe three meetings, we see the more aggressive hikes. But there was a statement in the last Fed meeting that Powell made during the press conference that I think is critical because what we want to know and what we want to listen for uh, at this meeting is – you know, how is the Fed's reaction function around inflation going to play out? Meaning, yes, we can all look at the consumer price index, but if we're going to sit here and wait for the consumer price index on a year-over-year, 12-month basis to decline below the Fed's 2% target, we're going to be waiting a while. But Powell made a statement where he said, really what we're looking for is month-by-month -month inflation coming down. And that's important because we have started to see, and far too early to call this a trend, but we've started to see some evidence that maybe month-by-month -month inflation pressures are waning. We've seen that in the most recent CPI print, which was the slowest in six months, but still uh, higher than what we've seen, uh, you know. Um, and if you uh, look at measures of inventory, they're starting to build early uh, days, but commodities in many cases have started to come down from elevated levels. There are early signs that on a month-by-month -month basis, we might see some inflation pressures waning. So we want to hear from the Fed, how are they reacting to that? Do near-term data prints matter, or are they more worried about this year-on-year, 12-month -year, you know, view of the, the consumer price index, or in, more directly in their terms, the PCE inflation rate? And if, if it's the latter, we could be more concerned about that, um, what we would call a hammer time scenario of short-term interest rates rising, not just more abruptly, but for longer. Because we could see an environment where PCE inflation is above 3% well into the middle of next year. That's the environment where the Fed funds rate is coming to a strict territory than even what the market has priced in. So that, that's what we'd be looking for. Leslie, as we think about next week, in terms of what do we agree with in terms of what's in the market, our, our strong view is that really this cycle is not going to be something that 
can be perfectly scripted out with a straight line on graph paper. This is one that is going to be very reactive to near-term data. I don't think that will be as obvious in the next month, but I think that will become very clear in the next six months as we start to see both the impacts of tightening financial conditions and overall slowing economic growth weigh on, on this market and, and inflation overall. So when we think about you know, a lot of the points that you had made in terms of the Fed and you know, inflation outlook and some of the challenges that you did, that you very accurately described that we've seen in the first couple of months of the year. And we look at the 10-year Treasury, right? So I ended the year at a 1.5% 10-year Treasury yield. Last week, it got to look at 297. It's almost 100% increase in 15 weeks. And, you know, when we think about that velocity of the move, and, you know, as you and I both know, sometimes it's not just about the rate, but it's about how quickly you get there. That could be such a headwind to certain whether it's equity or fixed income. And we know sort of this, you know, we have an idea of what the Fed roadmap might look like. Obviously, it's going to be very, you know, dependent on how the inflation projections turn out to be. But what do you think in terms of, like, 10-year yields? Do you think that we have room to run here? And and I know that, you know, you you, you know described it towards the early 90s, which I completely agree, agree with. But at least now, um, you know, back then you had a lot more carry than you have right now. So as we sort of, as tender yields normalize, like back to from the 50 basis points we saw in March of 2020, now to levels that we're seeing back in the 2018 era, what do you think about that, you know, you know, tender yields going forward? Do you think it's still the magnitude of the headwind, or do you think it's going to just stay higher but more range-bound? Yeah, there, there's a phrase that we have internally that, that we talk about in regards to interest rates, which is that speed kills. It's not so much that rates can't go higher over time, but the pace and the aggressiveness of the move that we've seen is really what creates the economic shock and the, and the shock to whether it be corporate or consumer behavior, which is ultimately what we're talking about. I think the perfect example of that is to look at the housing market. Yes, the housing market has been on fire post-COVID. It's been incredibly strong for several reasons. But one of those reasons is interest rates. It's a very interest rate-sensitive sector. But if we look simply at the example of a home purchaser who is going to buy, let's say, the median home in the United States and put 20% down and make a monthly payment at the conforming mortgage rate, since the beginning of 2021, we know home prices have been appreciating rapidly. So home prices are up, depending on region, anywhere from you know 10 to 20 percent over that time frame. But the mortgage rate has almost doubled. So now, you know, we look at a 30-year conforming mortgage rate in between five and a quarter and five and a half percent. So for that buyer, the monthly payment on that home has gone up more than 50 percent since the beginning of 2021. That near-term shock is something that does affect buyer behavior and we think will have a, have a you know, direct impact on you know, ultimately economic outcomes. Now, that's important because if you think about something like the 10-year treasury yield and try to ascertain value on, you know, does, it, does it make sense for the 10-year to be at two or three or 4%? Well, I think ultimately, the, the, the 
clearing level on the 10-year yield has to represent a level that the economy can withstand. And if we start to see evidence of areas like the housing market or other interest rate sensitive areas like the automobile market that have other nuances and supply constraints affecting them, but ultimately buyers largely finance those assets. And if we start to see the economy slowing down in those particular areas, I think we'd have a, we, we have a greater degree of confidence that you know, yields are in an area where they could stabilize or maybe even are a little bit attractive here to come down a little bit. Um, you know, another way that, that I would frame value in the Treasury market is let's go back to what the Fed's been telling us. And you know, their economic projections and their interest rate projections suggest that in the long run, uh, the average policy rate will be around 2.4%. Uh, now, this is a, a you know, long-run projection for the Fed, but we're already about a half a percent above that today where we sit on 10-year treasuries. Historically, that has been a pretty reliable governor on long-term yields. So I think the combination of Fed guidance and what we're seeing in terms of real economic impact of higher rates already suggests that there's actually value in long maturities here. And the last thing I'll say in terms of you know, interest rate valuation is that if we get into an environment, this so-called hammer time environment, where the Fed is saying, look, we need to raise interest rates more aggressively earlier on to intentionally slow the economy in response to inflation. The last time that happened was in the 1980s. At that point in time, um, the Fed similarly was chasing inflation higher, meaning responding to an existing inflation problem. And the yield curve, so looking at the difference between two-year and 10-year treasuries, um, was inverted by 2%, so 200 basis points. If we get into that more aggressive environment where the Fed is raising interest rates at the expense of the economy, I think a more significant inversion is very likely. And that, that's where I think 10 and 30-year treasuries can actually do okay, but it's the front end where you don't want to be involved. Right. So when we think about, you know, the level of rates as it relates to risk assets or credit spreads, I mean, you know, in the quote-unquote old days, we've always it's always been this, okay, well, if rates are rising, it's because of strong growth. And if growth is strong, therefore credit spreads will compress. But as we look at today's environment, and as you talked about, you know, the speed and, you know, everything else, how do you look, how, do, how are you thinking about, you know, credit spreads going forward? And, I, and I'd also be, you know, curious of your, listen, you know, as we know, the fundamentals are, you know, indicating soft landing. But how do you, how are you sort of looking at these two as it relates to what, if in fact, you know, not with the same velocity, obviously, but this trend continues and your overall view on credit spreads or, or risk assets as a whole. Yeah, yeah gr great question. And I'm fascinated by the fact that last year, the U.S. economy on a nominal basis grew at almost 12%. Some of that was growth. Some of that was inflation. Almost half and half, actually. And we've gone from that environment for, from 2021 so far, the Fed has raised rates by 25 basis points. Yes, more to come. But all the financial commentators are talking about imminent recession. That is a, an incredible juxtaposition in a short period of time. I think the important thing to ground ourselves in is the starting point 
four fundamentals. When I say fundamentals, I'm looking at corporate earnings, margins, leverage, and the investment-grade market all better than where they were pre-COVID. Default rates and default rate expectations in the high-yield market, exceptionally low, sub-2%. Consumer fundamentals from a from a wage and a leverage standpoint and a debt service standpoint, all very constructive. You put us in a in a point where I think the next step is not recession. Eventually, a recession will come. The business cycle has not been repealed, but I don't think that's the next step. And I do think that you know we will go through a period where first we have to adjust to the fact that we were pricing in no Fed tightening, approximately. A year ago, now we're pricing in quite a bit of Fed tightening. That's a painful adjustment, but that adjustment doesn't go on forever. And if we think about allocating across credit markets now. Well, I look at the investment grade market at a, you know, 133 basis points over Treasuries now. Okay, but I can also, you know, all in yield of on on, on high quality corporate investment grade bonds of four and a half to five percent same companies whose bonds we could have been buying two years ago at one and a half to two percent when you know the 10-year treasury was at that very low level of half a percent in August of 2020. I think what, what investors ought to look at is this is a rebalancing opportunity into high quality fixed income. So we're seeing that in our client base looking at Investors who have a longer time horizon, institutional investors starting to look at this market and say, perhaps I'm an overseas uh, corporation, maybe I'm a bank, maybe I'm an insurance company or a pension fund. I can now match my liabilities and earn an attractive level of income. This market is attractive. So I think that the corporate bond market and other high-quality fixed income assets like municipal bonds are attractive, and I think credit spreads you know, are also attractive given where we are from a fundamental standpoint. I do think the narrative changes a bit as you go down the quality spectrum. High quality, high yield looks okay. I think there are some opportunities our team does in terms of rising star candidates. Those companies that could get upgraded to investment grade have that positive price catalyst. But as you get down into single B and triple C, we think those are the companies that are going to be more vulnerable to changes in the cost of capital. That's where the example of speed kills really comes in and affects these borrowers. And as the cost of capital rises, that's where you're going to get pinched. And I don't think credit spreads are wide enough there to justify an overweight position in high yield. So for us, the, the, the short story on credit is we like credit, particularly high-quality credit. We think that's what's gone on sale in response to a technical, a poor technical environment that's 100% driven by the Fed. So if we, if we take that sort of one step further and in terms of your, you know, your positioning and, you know, portfolio recommendations, either within credit or whether it's taxable, not taxable, whatever it might be, U.S., non-dollar, um, what are your thoughts in terms of where, you know, people should be positioned um, and your overall just your thoughts, what you think about for just the remainder of the year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say one of the biggest portfolio allocation shifts we had post-COVID was to shift towards consumer-related assets over corporate assets. That's changed in the last six months. We've definitely been focusing more on corporate assets 
particularly, as I mentioned, investment grade and high quality, high yield. We think that's an attractive place to be that will earn, you know, very uh, attractive uh, real returns over the next 12 months, meaning above inflation. Um, you know, we're looking at, you know, 5% yields in investment grade, 6 to 7% yields in high quality, high yield. You know, I think relative to where we think inflation will be over the next year in terms of, you know, 3 to 5%, I think you're, you're going to get, um, you know, attractive real returns there, certainly relative to where, you know, we, you, you would see in tips. So we, we would be overweight, high quality credit in that way. Um, we would be underweight agency mortgages, which I think if there could be additional vulnerability as it relates to uh, the Fed and, and potential changes to their balance sheet policy down the line, there would be agency mortgages. Um, but we really do like certain sectors uh, of the municipal market. We think municipals have been unduly punished due to the retail nature of that asset class um, and, and the technical environment. Just the, the, the quite simple fact that investors have looked at municipal bond returns and said, shoot, I didn't sign up for this asset class to lose 10%. And now a lot of longer term municipal indices and funds are down 10%. But actually, we think that's an incredible buying opportunity. So we like we, we like being overweight municipals and overweight investment grade credit, underweight mortgage backed securities in this environment. Well, I say, James, I really I appreciate your time. And this has been um, a, you know, a great conversation with you and, and very, very insightful. Um, so I, I do thank you for taking the time. And now I just want to turn it over quickly back to Dan Cassidy. Great. Well, Leslie Falconio, head of taxable fixed income strategy Americas with the chief investment office here at UBS. Uh, Gene Tenuzo, the global head of fixed income at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Uh, thank you very much for the time, the insights provided. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much. Thank you both. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.